Hello and a warm welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. It's great to be back with you after this short hiatus and after the previous extended season, which explored the conversations and themes from my new book, Business Unusual. For this set of conversations, I wanted to journey into something a bit deeper. Given this moment of conflict and crisis, I want to dig beneath the surface of the systems, dynamics and patterns that are shaping our societies and civilization and ask the fundamental question, how can we empower every one of us to envision and create a more flourishing future for all? It's obviously a big question, it's a complex question, but as I've read more about the challenges facing not only our species, but the entire interconnected web of life. It's only really through understanding our entanglement with all of that life that I believe we'll be able to better understand the nature of the problems we face and paths forward to resolve them. With that in mind, I'll be speaking with some of the most inspiring and thought-provoking changemakers around today. Visionary folks who are reimagining how we conceive of society, activism, policymaking, economics, rest, creativity, and play. I'll also be creating and updating a new page on my website with books and resources that I've found invaluable in case you want to dive into any of these subjects in greater depth and you'd like some inspiration on where to start. You can find this at natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I hope this season brings you a renewed sense of possibility and connection. And I would love to hear if and how it inspires you to envision and create the flourishing future you want to inhabit. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalina High. And now, on with the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Indy Johar, the founding director of Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. An architect by training, Indy is a senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation and a visiting professor at the University of Sheffield. Having co-founded the Impact Hub Birmingham and Open Systems Lab, Indy was a member of the RSA's Inclusive Growth Commission, and he is one of the leading voices in the world of systems change the future of urban infrastructure finance, outcome-based investment, and the future of governance. Whether you're interested in how our societies might transition and respond to climate breakdown, or you're curious about understanding the interconnected ways in which we could foster systemic change, this conversation offers an exploration of both past and present and what steps we might take to create a more democratic, distributed, and sustainable future. Now, at certain points in this conversation, you might be able to hear a bit of drumming and maybe singing in the background of my audio. That's because I live in Barcelona in a particular district where they just love lots of festivals. And so occasionally it happens that it coincides with these interviews. It's a bit unpredictable, but I hope that that will simply add to the ambiance of our conversation. Indy, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm very well. Uh, delighted to be here. And uh, likewise, all yours, my friend. 
So you're one of the co-founding directors of the Zero Zero and Dark Matter Labs. Can you tell us a bit briefly before we get into the juicy questions, tell us a bit about your organization and what it does? So I suppose, uh, well, many of us, and certainly in Zero Zero, sort of came out of architecture or were involved in the built environment. And for us, kind of the built environment, which had largely been turned into a, uh, a function of capital, needed to be reimagined as a function of democracy. Mm-hmm. And how do you build our built environment to both and build our built environment from a democratic lens, but also build the build the capacities for enhancing democracy through the environments that we build. And that really was the passion. And that really where we, was where we started in many, many aspects, all the way from looking at you know, civic economies, economies which are are a function of civil society and civil agency, all the way through to, you know, wrote the book Compendium for the Civic Economy, to building stuff like the WikiHouse, open source housing, which communities can build, all the way through to building with uh, uh, people like Melissa Mean, um, the Bristol Urban Beach in 2007, to OpenDesk, open source furniture company, to being part of building the Impact Hub network and multiple impact hubs in the UK. Uh, and supporting hubs around the world. And this was all for me about actually how do we build deep democratic agency. And for me, that democratic agency has been really been the journey that we've been on. Um, And democracy for us is not just the vote, nor can it be restricted to the vote. It has to be restricted, it has to be kind of grown to the idea of agency in a much broader sense. And I think that's that's really been the passion at the centre of everything we've been doing. Mm. And curiously, um, the Dark Matter Labs, the name of Dark Matter Labs, can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Because that's quite an interesting name. (laughs) You know, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Uh, I think Dark Matter Labs came from actually a growing frustration having done, you know, whether it's WikiHouse or other things, realising that whilst we could democratise the material world and even the world that you, and that was plausible, there were rules and mechanism and norms and social imaginaries sitting behind the the material world, which were creating the implied order of the physical world we see around us. So the world we see around us is a function of deep structures, like mm-hmm. how we make money, uh, the idea of property, uh, the idea of contract law. These structures and their manifestations in more complex institutions actually constructs the world around us and it, it, it it's the it's the order it, it, the world we see around us is an implied order of that world and that became evident even in social investment and um and all these fields and that really became in sort of about 2016-17 became very clear to me that we needed to really go deeper into the problem if we were going to make a dent and that's really where the dark matter comes from and it's a kind of a sort of uh, a reference obviously to most of the universe is not made out of visible matter but this kind of dark matter this invisible stuff that structures the world around us and that's why we use the term because it was also about kind of saying look give emphasis to this other stuff innovation is not just about products and services but it's about the deep institutional reforms and the structures and the kind of logics, norms, language structures, languages, nouns versus languages, verbs. These things are formulating the world around us. And it is to reinvent that is critical in an age of transition. 
That's so, so fascinating. And I think also the, the poetry of that as well, of, of thinking about how we make the invisible visible, which is essentially, you know, the quest with dark matter. It's investigating something that must be there, but, you know, how do you give it a name and a form? And I think the work that you're doing, it seeks to do that within human society and beyond within the living web. So given the work that you're doing across these different domains, with the current crises that we now face, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that you and I are having this conversation while the Ukraine is under siege as well. So we're seeing war happening, um, not yet quite on our doorstep, but it's affecting many people's lives. I think as a function and reflection of some of these systems that you're speaking about. Um, so given this current context and all the complex challenges that we face, where is your greatest focus right now? What's, what's drawing your attention in this moment? I think we need to acknowledge we are living in an increased age of volatility mm. and that volatility um, is because deep fundamentals are no longer viable in the same way our reliance on hydrocarbons you know hydrocarbons give us something like 500 billion human works of energy a year mm. on which 8 billion human beings manifest right? so we, we are relying on things that are no longer viable and the material, the kind of energy material abundance that we've seen, and that has been the birthplace of our civilization as we know it, actually that abundance was not about consuming the interest of matter that's being crude, but consuming the principle. Mm -hmm. And that principle has now started to deplete to the point where it's starting to change everything else around us. So we have new and that, I think, is, you know, I think other people have written this more eloquently, but kind of the revenge of the real or matter matters. And I think we're seeing that. And I think we're seeing that, but also from a systems lens, which I think is really important. You know, if you look at the crisis we're in, you've got a situation where 50% of ammonia is produced in Russia. Hmm. That ammonia is um, being banned to being exported. And the implications are going to be significant in terms of farming around the world. Whether you look at barley and wheat that's produced in Ukraine and Russia, and the exports of that have stopped, and the implications on uh, sort of Africa, Northern Africa and also in Middle East are significant in terms of pricing, uh, pricing of those risks and those food prices going up massively. And we know in 2008, you know, uh, as food prices rose up, there were riots in 60 cities. And it was a kind of a, it was a beginning of obviously the Arab Spring. It seeded a lot of these things. So what we're going to see is this age of volatility and the linkages are no longer isolatable. Hmm. That's, I think, the big thing. The big thing we're seeing is we're living in a planetary interdependent civilization. We can imagine we're not interdependent, but we are. And that entanglement actually is what we're seeing played out in both the the, the war in Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and the, and the surrounding forces are using the powers of entanglement both ways. And I think there is something very critical about this transition of how we recognize a planetary entanglement and our mechanism to deal with those entanglements and to create um, a new framework. And I want to situate this in one other dimension, which is that the reality is 
that we have been at war for a very long time. Hmm. The war manifests in Ukraine and and Russia. But actually, if you look at a war between future generations, we are massively at war at future generations. If you look at you know, war that's happening around the world, whether it's Haiti and other places, we're systemically at war, where we're undermining current people living currently to be able to live fruitful lives. So the war is existing, resource wars, Iran, Iraq, you know, all this stuff, we know there are significant resource-orientated wars that are already in play. And I think, you know, the question for us is how do we construct a new great peace? Mm. And our economic instruments are actually mechanisms, our current economic instruments, not all of them, are massive mechanisms of everyday war. And what I mean by that is that it's a small indicator. I think the stat is that if you took 78%, 78% of the S&P 100 would be unviable if they had to price true social environmental cost. Wow, that's extraordinary. Right? And if you look at that from that lens, you start to see that actually we're systemically at war with nature, we're systemically at war with our population. And we know that if you were to accurately price carbon from the liability side, you'd be talking about somewhere close to 27,000 pounds a ton, or wow. sort of euros a ton. So we are systemically at war. And the question is, how do you build a great peace? Mm. And everything else we're saying, I, from my view, is, is the volatility manifesting. So I guess to give some context for this current state situation, because I think as soon as you start to pluck on one thread, you realise that the whole tapestry is implicated. I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment by Jason Hickel, Less is More, Why Degrowth Will Save the Planet. And one of the things that he writes about is, you know, the fact that the current systems are predicated on exploitation of land that's been stolen, bodies that have been enslaved. Uh, and then also the current model of capitalism is essentially growth for its own sake and how this is completely untenable and speaks to this idea of you know, we, we're at war with our current systems. And if we continue to go this way, we're going to end up destroying ourselves and much of the planet with it. Of course, the planet, I'm sure, will be bound. But so let's let's talk a bit about the context of how we got here, because I think that would be helpful. So what do you think, obviously, this is a big question, but what do you think are the key things that have given rise to this situation? So maybe thinking about the precarity of so many people's lives and the state of fear in which so many people live. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to sort of organise this conversation in a way, I would argue. So I, I think in a very short-term sense, I would say, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face is when we know the facts, why are we not able to do something about it? Yeah, yeah. Right? And I would say, and that, and that to me is a systemic issue, which is that we have created an economic model which has an economic paradigm which has massively engineered precarity. And the engineering of precarity is part of a mechanism to allow for the instrumentalization of people to do the work that's centrally planned. You know, centrally planned as in you know, through corporations and other things. So and that instrumentalization is a key dimension in the compact between the economy and um, sort of corporations and the economy as a, as a whole. So when you say instrumentalization, are you talking about basically conceiving of human work as something which is a resource that can be traded? Is it like the object 
subject. Exactly. And and also being, you'll see politicians say, well, we don't want people to become lazy. We we, we need to give, we need to make sure welfare is not so abundant that actually people become lazy. Because what they're citing underneath that is a theory and an idea that it is only through impoverishment that people will do work. That's insane, isn't it? Because I think if we think back all the way to the point where in the UK, which was awful in this regard. When it came to the enclosures, there was a sense that nobility presumably understood that if the people who worked on their land had free access to their land and didn't have to fight for their own survival for food, etc., they wouldn't be incentivized to work more than they had to. Now, if we're thinking through the lens of well-being, that's great. You know, we're talking about the four-day work week and we're coming back to these ideas that maybe, you know, working yourself to the bone is not what a human life could be or is about. And yet this idea of laziness of scarcity and of impoverishment as a tool to get people to work when we know that the richest 1%, I think they take something like, was it a quarter of the world's GDP? Um, I mean, it's just, it's clear that this system just is only serving a certain tiny minority. Absolutely. And there's a huge amount of nuance in this conversation. So I would say that certainly precarity has been a kind of economic engine or a mechanism to allow for the instrumentalization of work. Mm-hmm. Now, does this work in the 21st century? No. And it doesn't work because of complexity, so and contextualization, and everything being personalized. And also, the, a new age of automation, actually, and proceduralization, procedural work can and should be automated. It means that the human condition and the human contribution to our society and our world is actually less and less through proceduralism, uh, predictability. It's actually through care, complex cognition, uh, craft, um, also uh, you know creativity. It's a whole new dimension of contribution, and that requires not an instrumentalized theory of work or predictable predictability, actionability, instructability. It requires a new intrinsic capability, an intrinsic mechanism of curiosity, discovery capabilities which are focused on a different type of modality and i think that is a fundamental shift where we go from existential hope existential curiosity being a fundamental mechanism to discover in a distributed democratized way a new world and a new mechanism and that i think is a big leap and what i've spoken about there is what i would say is um, the short-term scenario right it's why and i think precarity also generates fear Fear generates actually uh, the desire for certainty and the desire for emotional soothing. So if you construct precarity, you also create the onboard effects of actually uh, wanting wanting the illusions of security. And that means that actually, typically in moments like this, we, we romanticize the past. We imagine it through a foundational lens. Uh, we we start to romanticize stuff like localism, go, God, you know, we used to live in a village, it was all great. It was just mass tyranny in other formats. And, you know, we romanticize the past mm-hmm. because we lose sight of a possible hopeful future. And I think that's true everywhere right now, certainly in a Western perspective. I think we have, you know, where we all pretty much, if we closed our eyes and looked at the future, would have day-to-day more dread about the future than hope. So, if you want to, and so that precarity drives that, right? It drives some of that fear. At the same time, it also drives 
uh, emotional soothing. We say no. We know in recessions, people buy chocolates. People buy more. Uh, five, yeah, go to the hairdressers more. They want emotional soothing. So we no longer start to actually build for the future. We self-soothe. And we actually are addicted to some of the self-soothing mechanisms, sugars and other things. So I think this, these meta-social neurological landscapes are constraining our capacity to move. And mm. at the same time, we also have deep lock-ins. And those are structural lock-ins of power, agency, capital uh, deployment that are also preventing us to move. So we're very much caught in a very particular moment of both locked in, in precarity, and actually in some of these deep struggles uh, on the table. It's, it's so tricky, isn't it? I was talking about some of these themes with Anthea Lawson the other day, who wrote The Entangled Activist, who speaks to many of these systemic challenges we face and to the complexity of unpicking them and trying to find a more generative way forward. And one of the things that really strikes me on a personal level, on a practical day-to-day -day level, is this tension between wanting to soothe oneself and to close the door for those of us who are lucky enough to live in safety and just turn inwards and not face into the atrocities that we're capable of. And at the flip side, the desire, at least hopefully in some of us, I hope increasingly in more of us, to face into the shit show that we're in and finding ways to stay with it while also not becoming so overwhelmed by being in it all the time, like reading news threads, etc., that we become incapable of, I guess, moving, thinking. And it's also, it's this sense of how do we, how do we consciously bring ourselves to the task of facing into it without immobilizing ourselves through overwhelm or fear? But, but I think there are ways to do that. So I think, you know, what I've described is a present conversation. It's a kind of very much a description of the present. I think there are other landscapes and other horizons which open up a much deeper sense of possibility and hope. Like, you know, uh, for example, you know, people like James Lovelock write this uh, or sort of certainly wrote, wrote in the first part of his book, in The Novocene. And I think it's a very interesting understanding which if you look at the planet you could say for the first time the planet is becoming self-aware it human machine ecological systems are becoming self-aware and able to self-modify our collective behavior and in this conversation i don't separate us from the planet the planet has a capability potentially to move a meteorite out of the way from hitting it and damaging it the planet has ability to, it already had an ecological ecological ability to self-regulate its temperature. It's now getting, it's now going to build an enhanced information systems built, uh, advanced capability. So in, a, in another more poetic sense, I would argue that for the first time that the planet itself is becoming conscious and maybe one of the first planets in the universe to become conscious. And if you look at it through that lens, I think we start to see a new possibility. I think we're at the middle point, at the kind of transition point between competitive civilizations to planetary scale consciousnesses. And I don't mean that in an esoteric sense. I mean that in a practical sense, where we are able to sense, turn that sense into intelligence, and then turn that intelligence into agency and self-modifier behaviors. That's an extraordinary act. And we're struggling to find that capability. But if you look at the arc, that's extraordinary. So... I, I do think that that opens up a different possibility 
and a different way of looking at the future, which I think is extraordinary and critical. And we need to be able to dream the big dreams. Mm. We're locked into dreams of the 1950s, the IMFs of the world, and actually the UNs of the world. And I think we need to dream bigger dreams and, and recognize new modalities. We're not in a post-war alliance landscape. We're in a different, different war, and it requires a different theory of uh, coming together. I love that idea of dreaming into being uh, a different world, which is perhaps more than it was or a different evolution of itself. I'm thinking about the mush of the <laughs> caterpillar before it becomes a butterfly and feeling the chaos of the mush, which is where I think we're just tipping into now. But for people listening to this thinking, OK, that sounds wonderful. I want to take part in this transformation with greater agency and uh, creativity, let's say. How can people start? How can we do that from an individual basis? So, you know, obviously thinking about personal agency, but then connected to friends we might speak to or wider society, whether it's transition network initiatives or whatever it might be. How do regular people who aren't doing this in terms of their work, how do they engage in this conversation, in this action? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I, I think it's a really valid point. And I, I would start by saying the first thing we have to do is reimagine ourselves. You know, every revolution or evolution of humanity is always based on a revolution and reimagination of what it means to be human. And I would argue that the first basis of this conversation is to reimagine ourselves. We're locked into ideologies of individualism, discreteness, objecthood. And these are one particular frame of seeing ourselves. Yet, if you see yourself, uh, both temporally entangled, you know, epigenetics and other things, but also see yourself actually in your social brain entangled in terms of your knowledge and your capabilities that are a function of your social networks and your relations that you hold. You can see yourself mi microbiologically entangled. You can see yourself entangled also in terms of actually our physics, in terms of quantum physics and our thinking. And also recognizing that many of these things are operating at different levels. So I think there's a really important cultural revolution of actually reimagining ourselves. And reimagining ourselves in space and time is, I think, really critical. And, you know, if you look at that, there's a lot of really interesting work going on of looking at the inner development and the journey of actually recognizing ourselves and operating in that way. It's not just recognizing our way, it's then operating in that way. So, I think that becomes a really key part of that story. And I, I think then the second part is, I think we have to adopt the reality that we have to be philosopher makers. Hmm. There's something that I've sort of deeply, I, I don't think it's sufficient to be a philosopher and I don't think it's sufficient to be a maker. It's a requirement for all of us to be philosopher makers and to be actually in that combined reality. And the manifestation of our inner development needs to convert into craft in what we're doing and how we're doing. And that is a really key part of this journey for me. And I think then the next part is I, I think we have to sort of operate at a much larger cycle. You know, if I was to ask, what would be your 100-year vision for tomorrow? Not tomorrow's, like, not next day not next 10 years, not a vision that you will benefit from, but a vision that sits outside your direct benefit. And I think we have to start to extend our theory of being human in time. And this is, I think, one of the greatest structural shortfalls of our current economic idea of, you know, isolating us, making us temporally 
uh, ever present um, and our democracy is that none of them give us the capacity to think over 100 years. Our democratic frameworks do not give us the capacity to think beyond 18 months, perhaps even a new cycle. So our ability as democracy to think over 100 years is actually really, is absolutely diminished as a society. Forget democracy. As societies, we no longer have the capacity. And I don't mean that capacity to think, capacity to finance, capacity to legitimize, capacity to organize. And that is currently a massive strategic risk for all democracies around the world. I think that is one of the big existential risks that we're facing. And that time and our ability as democracies not to see ourselves in boundaries. UK is not a boundary. It's not an island. It's a network of flows. Even if you take the water and the fish, they're parts of networks of flows and nutrition. So if you start to see yourself as part of a metabolic flow, a knot of metabolic flows, you have a different conception of what you're looking after and how you're guarding and preserving and enhancing it. So UK's theory of self-interest is not about the boundary of the UK. It's about the metabolic flows to which it exists in and actually uh, securing them, enhancing them, making them generative actually is on our mutual self-interest. And I think that becomes a really different way of both seeing ourselves, but also seeing the world around us in space and in time. So it sounds like a shift away from objecthood and us versus them and extraction and domination towards an entangled perspective of deeply recognizing that we are all connected and basically reliant on one another to collaborate for the health of the whole on all sorts of layers. Exactly. But through through not an idea of aid and generosity and morality, but almost an idea of enlightened self-interest. And, and I think we have to be really nuanced about this. I think the idea of the object-subject relationship, the ideas of, you know, the kind of modalities of classification which allowed us to uh, separate ourselves and each other from each other, that allowed a taxonomy that also permitted a violence. Um, so all of that worldview and Newton's idea of objects are objects and inert, uh, an inert objects seeing things as inert, not living processes, that created a, a worldview, and that worldview has manifested. The challenge that we face is that worldview was basically willfully ignoring interdependence. Mm -hmm. That worldview was willfully ignoring uh, the verb-like processing capacity of pretty much everything. That worldview was willfully uh, imagining the world through classification, not the entanglements. So, this goes deep into the system. This is not just about taxonomies and registries and how we classify. It also goes into our language system. You know, English is a very noun-orientated, object-orientated language, where there are indigenous languages which are verb-orientated, process-orientated, and they describe everything as an unfurling as opposed to an object. And that language then constructs our worldview, that constructs effectively our social structures, our social imaginaries. So this is a quite a deep transformation. And, I, and I, when I talk about English, I talk about modern English, mm -hmm. as it is. So languages evolve, they're not static systems. So there is a deep transformation in play. And this, for me, is a 400-year transformation where we start to operationalize ourselves in a completely different way and see the world that way. And the science is already there. Actually, the science, whether all the things I've mentioned, though, the physics, microbiomes, and all sorts of stuff, you can see the science is already there. 
What we haven't been able to do is take that science and manifest that into a real politic, a new pol politic of how we organize ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we revolutionize our institutions and our frameworks to reimagine them. So I'm very caught by your idea of the philosopher maker, of each of us finding a way to become philosopher makers, because it seems to me like that's a way to embody the changes that you're also describing. And as someone who is a musician and an artist, among other things, this idea of craft really appeals to me. So in your personal realm, how do you show up as a philosopher maker? What does that mean for you? So I, I think, so I'll, I'll do this at two different levels. I mean, one, I think this philosopher maker, in every moment of great turbulence, so if you look back in Sweden and the birth of the Volkschools, which were the precursors of polytechnics, right? the people's schools. They were places where 10% of the population in the 19th century went to them. And it, pretty much all over the Scandics, 10% in the 19th century. And remember, the Nordics were one of the poorest countries in the world in that moment in time. And those environments were places to philosophize and places to learn new capabilities skills, technical skills, new technologies. And if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, the UK in, built schooling in the 1750s and did educational reforms before the Industrial Revolution. We were ahead of actually pretty much all over the world. We did the educational reforms and that precursored actually the Industrial Revolution. Yes, we had coal, so did, so did Germany, so did Netherlands. Uh, yes, um, you know, Netherlands had a concentrated... Um, uh, the capital was massively concentrated, whereas actually the UK capital was more distributed. And actually, we, we started to build some of the educational institutions. So I would say every re revolution is actually built on a reimagination of human capability and building the infrastructures for those capabilities. So I think it's worth us. Now, the challenge is 21st century capabilities aren't about just learning. They're about new ways of being and being in the world. And that's why I think there are as much learning new modalities, new practices, as they are about the material, the capacity to both philosophize and make simultaneously, which I think gives you agency. So I think we're talking about a new type of institutional infrastructure required for the transformation of society, which is focused as much on our inner development as our craft, as our outer development models. Now, for me, this has just always meant that I worked at the kind of nexus between research and practice and effectively learning practice. Um, and I think that's really critical to operate in the world. And that's, and I don't apologize for trying to weave across those worlds. And I think we have to start to be more comfortable. You know, I get increasingly stressed when people say, just do it. Because it was like, you know, I think the logo should be burnt as an idea. <laughs> Because because I, I don't think this is a just do it problem. And I think just do it faces people, you know, I think this is actually a problem where we need to think and do together. And we need to actually craft this. It's an iterative process. Even if we think and then we do is not enough. It's think, do continuously in a theory of craft. And that is the functional reality of a complex emergent world. So, you know, I'll give you an old example, I think, of living in craft. Um, a katana, a Japanese sword, is optimized for the very particular iron that is that the that the uh, the master sword master is making. 
very particular iron, that particular iron, not another piece of iron, and the folding is done to that very particular iron. So that sword is perfectly attuned, optimized for that moment in time and that particular iron. At the same time, if you were to build a sword using modern principles of universal knowledge, you would say, what is the generic strength of iron? What is the factor on that iron of 1.2? And it would make swords everywhere around the world, so mass democratized, but they would not be optimized. They'd be incredibly redundant in matter. Hmm. So universalization allowed us to create a type of value but it stopped us creating a different type of value. And now what the really interesting magic point is that our technology is allowing us to be able to to do both parametric universalization and craft together. And it's a combination of these capabilities that I think is going to open up a new theory and means of work and a new human-machine work modality which I think is extraordinary and critical. But this that will only be a result of both universal knowledge and craft knowledge in a symbiosis. And that requires the human to be, at the, uh, uh, to be a philosopher maker because they are working to optimize to context, to personalization, to that moment in time and to relationships in radical new ways. That's so fascinating. I think also the question is, you know, how do, how do people then... It's kind of almost chicken and eggs. I think I very much agree with you in the sense that, you know, these things, our ways of thinking, our ways of embodying change have to hopefully come together. And I think the key word there really is around emergence. Emergence isn't pre-planned. It's something which kind of unfolds from a specific context which we can actually inform and change. So if we're trying to create conditions for a context through which emergence into some of these new systems or ways of being can can flourish, then maybe a question there is, how do we let go of our need for control? Because emergence doesn't come out of control, right? So how do we enable ourselves or one another to, maybe a word is kind of surrender, to be able to allow emergence to, to happen while guiding it with certain seeds or principles? Well, I, I would be a li- little bit more nuanced, I would suggest, is that I mm-hmm. don't think that emergence just happens. I think you have to create the conditions for emergence to happen. And and I and I think this is where I think we have to create conditions for that emergence. And though that's where environments um, you know, for example, food systems around the world are losing nutritional de- density. That nutritional density has implications of, you know, the current projections are over over the next sort of whatever. 80 years you'll see cognitive decline of up to 80 uh, 20 IQ points mm-hmm. now that basically is the difference between a PhD student and not right so our food systems our financial precarity reduces IQ by 10 points in households right uh, or air pollution reduces lifespan so I think you have to and that's just the material lens then there's the the trauma lens, right? What that does to our capacity to be curious and generative, and then you have to create the social um, learning frameworks. How do you how do you build shared language together, shared ways of sensing the world together, uh, or even sensing world together, and a language to actually allow those to emerge, and creating the generative, deliberative spaces for those for those frameworks. So emergence requires conditions, mm. and those conditions are really critical um, to be able to do that. So 
I, th I think that's where the work is, is creating the context for this transition, creating a new context for this transition. And I think I'm not a big fan of um, of quoting Churchill uh, um, <laughs> for lots of reasons, but, you know, one point he does make is that, you know, you make your environment and then your environment makes you. And that co-evolutionary reality is actually really critical. And I think we have to start to evolve our environment to help it co-evolve us. And it's a symbiotic relationship in that sense. So to be the fly in the ointment, um, obviously there are many vested interests by those who are benefiting from the current system in keeping it as it is. How do we begin to deal with that? Like, how, how do we make headway in the face of powerful opposition? So I, I think we have to look back in history. Um, and, I, and I think this is where we have uh, lost, uh, lost frameworks of the big. Um, we have, as a civilization and species, done extraordinary things at scale that I, I think we are not permitting ourselves to think about. The NHS was born when, you know, the UK was bankrupt, yeah. right? Just after World War, we were literally bankrupt. And we built that. 1833, I think, or sorry, 1819, I think it is actually, Denmark came out of bankruptcy to actually invest in uh, human education, uh, education in this new way. So I think we have done extraordinary things in history. And that's just two. I mean, let's pick some more. So 1833, the UK invested 25% of GDP to abolish slavery. Now, yes, that money was largely uh, only allocated to actually uh, the owners of slaves and also to, uh, and thereby to the banks who had financed the, the slavery. And so most of the money went out and wasn't given for actually building an equitable framework. But 25% of GDP was done in the middle of, you know, the UK being one of the, it was a, it was a global superpower of extraordinary means. Mm -hmm. So we have done extraordinary things. And I think one of the big challenges for us is to imagine our capabilities to do extraordinary things. And I think, you know, and this is what I mean about the kind of precarity, the precarity reduces us to incrementalism and fear and, um, and change nothing mentality, as opposed to, and that precarity will then make us more vulnerable to more violent transformations, which I think is one of the risks that we're facing. Mm. So talking about that precarity and feeling unsafe and craving safety, and you mentioned earlier kind of the sense of the past becoming a nostalgic place that never really existed, but that we somehow aspire to. What in your mind when you dream about a shared-rooted future, what could replace the old ideas that we might have of a non-existent home to give us a sense of vision that we can work towards? At a kind of almost a political level, I would say that I think there are three major structural transitions. Mm -hmm. And for me, they are building our collective consciousness and understanding of our interdependence. Right. That's building our now that interdependence will make us feel entangled and entrapped. Mm -hmm. So and this is really important, I think. So and I think people are feeling trapped. So simultaneously, we have to actually enhance our theory of freedom 
And it's this it's this has to be an our, and our theory and practice for it. We have to construct new freedoms in relationship to our interdependence. And simultaneously, we have to construct a new praxis of work which is constructed around care. Hmm. Now, and I don't mean care, I mean care in every sense. How do you manifest in care? And I think these three things, and again, a sort of I don't apologize for them being philosophical, but they are structural transformations because they allow us to deal with the work that we need to do, but also democratize and decentralize the work, which is important in a complex age because you can't do it through a centralized plant, planned uh, controlled modality. And all companies are centralized command and control modalities. Companies are largely vertical vertical systems based out of kings and queens, where and that they have the suffer the same problem of information being you know, the CEO or the king will have very low levels of information of what the real issues are on the ground and the innovation required. So this for me is a deep transition at that level. And I think that's one step. The other step is I think, you know, as you rightly hinted halfway through this conversation. How do we think about ourselves from moving from an object world to an entangled world? I think that's a 400-year transition. Mm. The next transition is how do we think of ourselves from a kind of control world, a world where the world is linear, predictable, and requiring control, and you can control, tell people what to do, to recognizing in a complex emergent world, actually, the role of leadership is to provide the frameworks of learning. It's not about control. It's about the learning and the reflective spaces for innovation and agency and action to be at the front of the system rather than controlled at the back of the system. So leadership moves from sitting on the cart dragged by humans to being at the front of the cart. And that's what leadership is. Leadership is not about followership. This is one of the things I really want to... Leadership is not about followership. Leadership is your agency in the world to do with greatest care, what you do. That is leadership. And that it doesn't matter what, where and how in, the, in the, the kind of planetary organism you're sitting, that is genuine leadership. So I think that's the next dimension of going from control to learning. And then the final dimension, I would say, and this goes back to some of the conversation we were having right at the beginning, of, you know, I think we are in a metamorphosis, a massive metamorphosis of being a, civ- a multi-civilizational planet which is operating through theories of competition against resources to being a planetary civilization, whether it's in logistics terms, food systems terms, monetary terms, information metrics, a planetary level civilization which is now having to evolve and um, grow in a completely different way. And that transition is not only a transition of our institutional frameworks, it's also a deep transition in our energy material frameworks. And that, I think, is the third one. So for me, this comes into actually recognizing the scale and the epoch level, the three three epoch level transformations that we're in the middle of. And I would argue that is both, you know, that is is the work, uh, that is the need, and that is the opportunity to actually uh, create a new landscape of freedom, a new landscape of emancipation, which actually operates in care and in cognition of our interdependence. And that's not just for human systems, but also for non-human systems in a a, a radical way. And so if we're thinking about 
people or entangled systems that are maybe showing the green shoots of change towards this vision that you've given voice to, are there examples that you look to and you think, okay, this is moving us in that more generative direction? Oh, totally. I mean, I, you know, some, I mean, I could literally name sort of whether it's rivers being made self-sovereign in New Zealand or Canada, uh, forests in Canada, or which is recognizing nature as a self-sovereign entity to which we do not own, but we're in relationship to. That's about changing our relationship with the world, a deep change, transformation of our world, not about dominance, control, ownership, but in treaty with and in relationship with. That, that I think, sim- symbolizes and actually is a pathway to a radical new practice which allows us to recognize this entanglement in a different way and moves us through ideas of ownership into new modalities. I think we, you know, there's conversations going on about, you know, we're part of conversations around what does a hundred year parliament look like? A parliament which is, you know, imagine if we replace the House of Lords in the UK with a hundred year parliament whose focus was to look at the interests of the next hundred years of the UK. And it was built through sortation. So its purpose was actually to represent the needs and requirements of the 100-year citizens of the UK, and not just the UK, but the system, 100-year system. So you can start to see those conversations, certainly not in the UK, but in other places, are being held, um, changing the modality of that parliament from being not about debate, but co-creation. Because when you put sortation in, you can change the behavioral modality of, of that democracy. So you know, or whether you look at new theories of money, which have been talked about, and whether it's, um, you know, wh- whether we look, you know, there's lots of things to dislike about Bitcoin, which I am very happy to go into. But I think there are some very interesting things about this Bitcoin being outside the state, uh, the dominance of a single state and the dominance of, or the dominance of the private sector to create a new genuine open, you know, I would say civic infrastructure it's unfortunately in design terms i think it's regressive socially regressive because it amplifies inequality but i think you can start to see a poem of a different possible future um and you know you know so whether it's ethereum which is looking at planetary computation capabilities uh, i think those are beginning points of building the infrastructure for new classes of institutions which operate outside traditional boundaries so those are and again i don't herald these things i think they're just i'm just um, I'm just showing them as kind of indicative examples of new realities out on the table, and I think we're going to see many, many more of them. And I think you know we're you know we're doing work around even even going back into stuff like you know moving beyond ownership. We're doing a piece of work around how does a house own itself, hmm. right? Which means that you change, you fundamentally change the relationship for the house not being a device to rent seek from you by somebody else nor do you make it a device to which you own because you know that the house and that plot of land actually has many, many more custodians than just my needs. So how do you build new theories of relationship, whether whether that's that or whether it's actually how do you operate and finance and organize work at a landscape level, which involves many, many actors So how do you build an economy which is not based on contract law between two actors and the adjacency of two actors, but many-to-many actors being contracted in a contracted space to create value? So to deal with climate change, one of the things we are going to have to do is, in many ways, look at the role of 
uh, nature-based assets in our cities to mm. deal with flooding risk, deal with uh, temperature, heat trend effects, to deal with uh, health, health pollution, uh, health impacts, uh, all sorts of things. How do you do that in a way which isn't a function of a top-down imposition, mm. but actually a, a, an emergent coherence of many, many actors working together, building those coordinating institutions that allow for emergent coherence of 600 community groups building community forests, which collectively build a new type of infrastructure which offsets additional sewers, offsets uh, impacts into people going for heat stress into into hospitals in different ways. So I think we, you know, these new types of common, uh, digital common asset uh, institutions. These are these are going to be these are plausible. So I'm seeing stuff at the monetary level, at the contract level, at the governance level, but also at the practical level of, you know, you know how we relate to nature, generative soil. You look at the generative soil movement. I think there's some extraordinary work happening there. Um, so I, I see loads of it, and I, I think the kind of the challenge for us is actually to reinforce and build, reinforce and build. So thinking about the scale of the task ahead, it strikes me that actually one thing that could be helpful for me as I listen to you lay out the territory and for, for you listening is to ask ourselves where within this network of change as a single agent connecting with lots of other people and beings, where can we be of most help? Where are we most drawn to, to lend our skills, our voice, our talent is there a particular question that you would ask people listening or maybe a practice that you would suggest people engage in to help us take the first steps within this kind of story of reimagining? I think it's a reimagining of everyday things. Mm. And often people say, where, where should I start? And I think, as you rightly said, in a world of entanglement, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You start anywhere, literally anywhere how you walk into a coffee shop, how what you choose to engage with, how you choose to engage. I think you can literally start this anywhere. But it has to start with a theory of care of yourself, a care for the world around you, and actually allowing ourselves to be emotionally vulnerable and available to be able to go through that journey. And I think that is a permission that we have to give ourselves to manifest in that world. But literally anywhere. There is no, there is no sweet spot it is everywhere and you can pick anything and you work your way down through it. So then, moving slightly towards the realm of the imaginal, and you did mention imaginaries earlier, is there a story or it could be a fairy tale or a poem or a myth or a quote or a song, but some form of story that most inspires or supports you in doing this work? I think for me, this has always been a journey of belief, faith, in the extraordinary unfurling capacity of every human. Hmm. And and an, kind of an infinite faith in the unfurling capacity of every human. And not and in that capacity, not seeing, not so I think we too often we see the world and we see the world, the law and the rules. As a, as a control mechanism. But I would say they're not a control mechanism. They're an invitation for us to be our better selves. And I think across the two of those, the infinite possibility and the capability of being human combined with actually a mechanism and invitation to ennoble ourselves, 
I think there's a great, great opportunity. And when you marry that with an idea that this may be one of the few planets becoming conscious, how privileged are we to be here? So a couple more questions that I want to throw your way before we close. Sure. In the work that you do, <laughs> you're clearly a complex thinker and you, you seem to think in constellations and systems. What tools or practices, maybe one, maybe a couple, have been invaluable to you in making sense of our predicament and how to move in a more generative direction? I'd say very simple. I mean, for me, one of the biggest things was not thinking in text, linear text format. Mm -hmm. I think linear text format actually destroys our capacity to understand complex interlinkages and tries to create false value chains or chains and actually subverts transition. So one of the big things that we did right at the beginning was we used to make these massive maps. Mm. And we didn't write documents. We would say, this is a map of the relationships and the problem, this kind mm. of system scale maps. And they became the hallmark of DM. You know, and we, I think we were one of the first few agencies to really, organizations to do that sort of stuff at that scale. And that was an invitation to everyone around the table to actually talk about that work together. And I think changing the the medium and the format of how we work, and today it's mirror boards or whatever, but changing the format of how we conceive and structure conversations, I think is one of the biggest, deepest revolutions in this, and in terms of mediums of practice. Mm, wonderful. And then also on a personal level, and I ask, I'm asking this from all of the guests because I'm curious how you deal with this. When you have difficult days or when you look at the situation in the world and you think, God, why aren't more people waking up to the challenges we face? Why aren't more people getting involved in, in the various ways in which we can in this kind of reimagining of what actually is possible? How do you find hope? You mentioned faith earlier, but how do you shore that up when when things get really tough? I suppose I'm, I'm, a, I'm a realist, a uh, pragmatist, hopeful person. <laughs> I believe in our capacity to make this transition. I think it's a belief, it's a necessity. And I think the politics of this, I, you know, I, I think when you hear this stuff, and these are not my words, these are words of many, many people, there's an undeniability to it. And so the emergent coherence, I have great faith in. At the same time, I also recognize the world will be tough. But we have gone through tough periods. And it will be tough, and it will get tougher, and there will be crises. And I think we have to live in both those constellations, and we have to do the work that's necessary. I'm just thinking, what's the work? It's funny, this, um, this Friday, obviously this conversation is going to come out a couple of months after we've had it. But this Friday, tomorrow, I'm singing a few songs at a uh, spoken word night where <laughs> they've got I'm more in the vein of folk and they're more like hip hop and poetry but there we have it and all the proceeds are going to go to um, organisations that are helping victims of war in, in the Ukraine and beyond and one of the things that I keep coming back to is is this sense of you know yes how do you how do you reckon with the the fear the uncertainty the dissolution the volatility and also, I think one of the things that, that kind of is becoming increasingly clear to me, how do you hold space for beauty and for poetry and for, you were mentioning earlier, philosopher making? I think it's this sense of 
envisioning something else that could be more beautiful and then making music or poetry or craft or whatever it might be that embody that change, something tangible or experiential that can give people a real lived sense of, ah, this is a taste of what's possible. Um, I don't know if there's a particular point to this, but as you're speaking, that's something that comes to my mind, which feels like a very insignificant contribution on my part, you know, three songs. But it does no, feel I, like a step in the river of change somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I would say that one of the most extraordinary things that we will see the rebirth of live. Hmm. And live not as, as live as a mass co-production, hmm. you know, mass jazz. Uh, but not just instruments. And I, I, I think that's all about the viscerality of contextual improvisation and proximity and uh, presence, embodied sensing. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think there is whole new mediums to be born. And the purpose of those mediums is to give us the experiences of a new reality. Mm. And because the music will give us the cognitive experience, the kind of emotional experience. And then that will gives us the hope to be able to scaffold into deeper and deeper parts of it. So I totally agree. Beautiful. Thanks. That's given me courage. Pleasure. So if people want to learn more about your work, where are the best places for them to find you and support what you're doing? Well, uh, you, we write a lot. So come have a look at uh, darkmatterlabs.org, our website, uh, which uh, uh, come join the Discord channel, uh, come be part of, uh, read a lot of the work that we write in Medium and contribute and be part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Thank you.